Prepare to be astonished. It's that time again. Let's get started. From the Clatsop County Historical Society, an adventure in history with Matt Burns and Alana Quila. You should never be allowed to talk to people. Some people without brains do an awful lot of talking. And now, with today's adventure, it's Mac and Alana. Good evening and welcome back to an adventure in history. Summer is quickly coming to a close, but the weather's beautiful still. It is still beautiful. Yeah. And had some big cruise ships in town. That was nice. Yeah. Although we always have the river cruises. They that, never they never end. That's true. Right. It's, like, it feels like fall season, though, once the cruise, cruises come back. It kind of does. Yeah. And we, we had a beautiful picnic today for Providence Seaside Hospital. All of our employees were invited oh, nice. to a picnic because, I mean, what do you want to do on your day off? Go, go to, hang go to, out. Go to work with and hang right. out with people you work with. <laughs> you know, though, if it's a nice environment, then that should be something. It was Cullaby Lake, so it was away from campus. We usually do them oh. on campus, so this is, was the first time in many years to do it off campus. Mm-hmm. So nice. it was fun, and yeah, and you know, people didn't have to come by any means. So I did mention it last week because we had a guest, but... Um, yeah, we talked about uh, Larry Zeke, our longtime mm-hmm. custodian that passed away. We had a nice little, I don't want to call it a memorial service because it wasn't formal. It was just a come and share stories. I had like 60 people oh. come on the grounds oh, of the Fuller House. Really it was very nice. nice. Some folks from KMUN, a lot of historical right. society folks, and a guy that went to school with him in, in, back in a cell in high school. Really? It was very amazing. And, and had he heard on the radio? Is that? Uh, I don't know how we heard because okay. uh, we just kind of emailed out as much as we right. could. We did it on the radio here because uh, we didn't know all. The people sure. that he had come in contact with, and a ton of people, of course. But uh, it was very interesting. The guy said, yeah, I was his campaign manager and speechwriter for when he ran for student president oh, in high school. And, and he won. He was. Oh. This, and, and the two of them, and uh, I think another guy, had an underground newspaper. Ooh. That the, uh, I like that. that. The school leadership <gasps> was not a fan of because they were, like, railing against Nixon. Oh, wow. And, you know, you don't do that. You don't rail against the president. Unless it's an underground paper. <laughs> yes. I said, do you still have copies? And the guy said, yeah. So I'm hoping that he will get us copies or let us scan them or something. Comes through. Oh, I love that. Yeah. His legacy lives on. It was very, very charming. It was very nice. And, you know, we didn't really know what kind of food. All all any of us with the historical study remembers is him sitting in his truck um, eating his lunch. And it was always a bologna sandwich and a big bag of chips that looked like it took like three weeks to work his way through. <laughs> so we were going to do little bologna sandwiches, but I couldn't quite bring myself to do oh. that. But we did put a big bag of chips out yep. and I had to explain that. And I said, so let's all eat from Larry's bag of chips tonight. And wow. people did. So that's, it was very nice. Oh, that's great. All right. Uh, well, we do have something to plug, but we'll plug that in a little bit. Do we have okay. anything else to plug? No, no. Shall we get right to the big show then? Get right to it. All right. So these are, uh, it's been a while since it's just been you and me. I know. It's nice. I know. It is nice. Well, nobody, I like guests. So. Nobody interrupting us. <laughs> well, I interrupt. Nobody, nobody laughing at our jokes that they don't get. <laughs> that only you and I do. <laughs> laughing politely. Right. <laughs> All right. So these are things uh, tomorrow, September 26th, 1580. Francis Drake circumnavigates the globe Ooh, I on saw the Golden that. Hind. I've never liked the name of that ship. No. It bothers me. There was probably a good reason for it, usually. But I do like his cupcakes. (laughs) Don't laugh at that. (laughs) All right. uh, 1772. New Jersey passes a bill requiring a license to practice medicine. Thank you, New Jersey. That's probably a good idea. That was good. But Jersey, of all people. Really? Good for you, New Jersey, but I'm surprised. 
I like picking on New Jersey. Uh, 1789, Thomas Jefferson is appointed the first U.S. Secretary of State. He's my third favorite Secretary of State. <laughs> I have no list on that one. Um, and John Jay is, uh, becomes the first U.S. Chief Justice. Okay. Johnny Jay. Uh, 1820, Daniel Boone dies in Missouri. He's 86 years old. Oh. That's a long life. That is a long life. Uh, 1928, I have a a lot on this, but I probably won't read the whole thing, but uh, 1928, work begins at Chicago's new Galvin Manufacturing Company, and uh, they're basically the Motorola radio. They introduce radios for cars. Oh, interesting. The Galvin, what was the The name? The Galvin Manufacturing Company. Huh. Uh, Paul Galvin was the engineer. 1921, engineer Paul Galvin and his friend Edward Stewart started a storage battery factory in Marshfield, Wisconsin. It went out of business two years later. In 1926, Galvin and Stewart restarted their battery manufacturing company, this time in Chicago. That one went out of business as well, but they'd figured out a way for home radios to draw power from an electrical wall outlet. They called it the dry battery eliminator. And then uh, he basically brings the... Uh, eliminator part back out of his bankrupt company and goes right into business, um, making them for uh, Sears Roebuck. Interesting. And then he turns to car radios. They knew they had something. Yeah. They just kept trying just to find the right didn't niche. didn't know quite how what, how it would fit. That just seems really early to me for right. car stereo. Well, why you would be thinking of that. <laughs> I mean. Uh, let's see. 1945. The first U.S. soldier killed during Vietnam's August Revolution. Lieutenant Colonel Peter Dewey, a U.S. Army officer with the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, is shot and killed in Saigon. He was the head of a seven-man team sent to Vietnam to search for missing American pilots and to gather information on the situation in the country after the surrender of the Japanese. Hmm. So kind of technically for us, the beginning of the Vietnam War. Right. 1945. You don't want that like as your claim to fame, being the first guy killed. No, but a team of seven isn't very promising either. No. Right? I mean... <laughs> Well, it seems like even though you know a lot of people think of the OSS as precursor to the CIA, okay. it doesn't seem like they were there to stir up trouble or cause trouble. They were really looking for, hey, what's going on here and any U.S. soldiers, U.S. airmen that we should be trying to find. Right. Apparently, yes. 1957, West Side Story opens on Broadway. It's a good one. Are you a fan? I don't know. It's depressing. I'm ambivalent. <laughs> I mean, it's Romeo and Juliet, right? Yes. Every time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, I think it was a very good modern uh, storytelling of the of Romeo and Juliet. Did you see Spielberg's version? I have not. Neither have I. So we can't come on it. <laughs> I know. Uh, but go ahead and let us know how you feel about it. Yeah. 1964. Now, I'm not ambivalent about this. 1964, Gilgan's Island premieres. All right. <laughs> I am stupidly a fan of Gilgan's oh. Island. You know, you know. Can uh, you sing the song? Of course. I won a contest once. For that? Yes. For singing the song? Yes. It was a uh, um, kind of a local tourist thing back in Wichita, Kansas. And the winner was getting a uh, two-night stay in a brand new Hilton that had just opened. And $100 spending money. And you won. And I won the contest because (laughs) only two of us entered. Oh. (laughs) There was like 100 people there. And nobody would do it. And they were giving out drink tickets. Like just walking in, you got two free drinks. And this guy's wife or girlfriend forced him to do it and I signed up I mean I went prepared and he goes first I I made him go first and I lean over before either one of us starts I say I hope everybody used up their drink tickets 
And he goes to the microphone. He goes, I hope you all used up your drink tickets. Oh. <laughs> I'm like, he's using my material. Already. But he sings. He does an okay job. I sing it, but then I sing the after the show part. Oh. And everyone's like clapping. But then I'm like, wait, there's more. And I sing the second part of the song. Nobody like even knew that existed. There you go. So it was a hands down, no doubt. Here you go. You win. You won it. Two nights stay and a hundred bucks. Yes. But you know, the professor actually had a name. He did. He did. He was Professor Roy Hinckley. They say it once. Oh, okay. There you go. And uh, Skipper is Jonas Grumby. Okay. They say it once. Huh. Anyway. Um, way more than anybody wanted to know. 1969, <laughs> the Brady Bunch premieres. Oh, there's another fun one. There's a story. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. I have love. Almost made me do it. Uh, 1983, Soviet military officer. I wish we all knew about this. 1983, the Soviet military officer, Lieutenant Colonel Stanislav Petrov, averts a worldwide nuclear war by judging oh. supposed missile attack from the U.S. as an error. Are you okay. familiar with this story? No, but I, I was reading it. When I was looking it up too, mm-hmm. and and he said he he, he said, if, well, do you have more? I mean, he, he I, was I, saying I, if the U.S. really was going to attack us, it would mm-hmm. be double the amount of what we're seeing right exactly. now. Exactly. Yeah. And so yeah. I'm like, oh, but five nuclear weapons coming at you is, <laughs> is the is stealth okay? way, of, stealth way of starting a war. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> now, it was a, a military uh, training exercise, and normally they would always let either side know. So you don't misinterpret. Sure. And in U.S. and whoever else was doing a part of NATO never let anybody in the Soviet Union know. Or if they did, it didn't trickle down enough to the guys on the front line. Right. And, it and all of a sudden they saw what yep. appeared to be missiles flying. And it didn't actually hit the ground. No. But yeah, I liked his response. Well, if this was the United States, there'd be yeah. 12 of them instead of six. Or but, but basically, they were all told, you know, fire your missiles. We're under oh attack. And he put a stop to it. He was like, no, I'm not going to obey that order. So this guy saved the world. Yeah, that's what you want. We should all know about One this guy. smart person in the room, at least. <laughs> um, but our history highlight of the day, the thing I think had the most impact on history, 1960, Kennedy and Nixon square off in the first televised presidential debate. Kennedy emerged the apparent winner. And it's funny because anybody who listened to it on the radio, hands down, thought Nixon won. Anybody who watched TV, hands down, thought Kennedy won. And the reason being, Nixon didn't shave. And most importantly, refused to wear makeup. Yep. And he was sweaty. Yep. (laughs) And he looked uncomfortable. He looked like he was lying. And Kennedy looked like Kennedy. So they actually showed that in journalism school. And we Ah. listened first. We did. And then we watched it. And again, we all, you know, everyone had the same perceptions as well. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, there were a lot of lessons beyond just the makeup. But the makeup was kind of a big one because appearances do matter. Exactly. Um, You can be really nervous. But if you if you look really nervous because he didn't sound I mean, he he was okay. I mean, what he said was just fine. Mm -hmm. Um, But the fact that he didn't look good and confident um so i love that that's being used in journalism school yes well i broadcast journalism i was Uh. was broadcast but still important you know yep and i think just because of that and because it was the first televised and now we live in a world of sound bites right that was kind of the start of presidential sound bites yep so what i miss anything no that was i I had that one i was wondering if you'd miss that one wow and it was my highlight highlight. good job i'm training (laughs) you well mac (laughs) so speaking of highlights we yes. have something really cool. We've only we've never done this before, and we'll probably never do it again. Yes. Um, but we had an opportunity. So this Saturday, October first, yep. at the Liberty Theater at seven o'clock for free, 
free by I donation. You can make a donation. We'd like you'd like you to make a donation. It's a perfect way to start off October. Because this 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 was not free to us, but we're making it free <laughs> to you. We have 125 years of Dracula from novel to stage to screen. Dun dun dun. Dacra Stoker, great grandnephew of the famous author Bram Stoker, leads this fast-paced survey of the last 124 years tracing Dracula's emergence from novel to stage to screen with images and film clips at the Liberty Theater. Again, this Saturday, 7 o'clock, October 1st. Uh, Dacra Stoker is the international best-selling co-author of Dracula the Undead and the official Stoker family endorsed sequel to Dracula. Doc Ray, Doc Ray is also the co-editor of The Lost Journal of Bram Stoker, The Dublin Years, 2012, released in 2018. Dracul, a prequel to Dracula, co-authored with J.D. Barker, and it was the UK's number one best-selling hardcover novel in horror and supernatural in 2018, and a top five finalist by the Horror Writers Association for the Bram Stoker Award for superior achievement in a novel. Paramount Studios have optioned film rights for Dracul. I like that it won the Bram Stoker Award. Wouldn't you be disappointed <laughs> if it didn't? <laughs> so this is going to be cool. This guy is yeah. a, a grandnephew, great-grandnephew, and he lectures all over the world. He's coming to the Pacific Northwest, and this is kind of the end of his tour, but we had the opportunity to get him. And even though there was no Dracula movies made in Oregon, we thought it was close enough. Yeah. <laughs> and we thought it was cool enough. So it's 7 o'clock this, uh, this Saturday, October 1st, 125 years of Dracula from novel to stage to screen. It's free. Uh, we always take donations, and that would be appreciated. And we may be actually be making a uh, reappearance of the child's casket from <laughs> the Mortuary Collection movie that was filmed in the Flavelle House. When we had the premiere of that movie at the Liberty, we put that out for donations and then a regular donation box, and almost everybody chose to throw money in the little coffin. Oh, funny. So we, we may bring that back, but uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. It'll probably be like an hour and a half or so, maybe an yep. hour and 20 minutes. I think you'll take questions. Uh, it's going to be entertaining. I'm sure it's tons of stuff I didn't know. Yeah, it's been a long time since I read Dracula. Well, I like it because here's a relative you know, a couple removed, who took a fascination, obviously, because he had to have done a lot of this research himself, and then to market it as a job so that he gets to go around and then share his family history, share what he's learned. Um, How fun. Yeah. So actually, speaking of family history, Mm -hmm. we thought to to tease and excite you and make you want to come to this event, we thought we'd do a little bit of history of Bram Stoker. Yes. So Abraham Stoker... Mm. Uh, was an Irish author who is celebrated for his 1897 gothic horror novel, Dracula. Oh, and I should say, Bram Stoker actually toured the Pacific Northwest. Okay. Uh, we haven't been able to There's pinpoint how close he came, uh, but I assume he came to at least Portland, maybe maybe even closer. But uh, we're still researching that, so maybe by Saturday we'll know. So, uh, celebrated for his 1897 gothic horror novel, Dracula. During his lifetime, he was better known as the personal assistant of actor Sir Henry Irving and business manager of the Lyceum Theater. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, so somebody might correct me, but I'm going to keep pronouncing it that way until I'm corrected. So unless somebody calls in right now, uh, which Irving owned. In his early years, Stoker worked as a theater critic for an Irish newspaper and wrote stories as well as commentaries. He also enjoyed traveling, particularly to Cruden Bay, where he set two of his novels, 
During another visit to the English coastal town of Whitby, Stoker drew inspiration for writing Dracula. He died on April 20th, 1912, was cremated in North London. Since his death, his magnum opus, Dracula, has become one of the most well-known works in English literature, and the novel has been adopted for numerous films, short stories, and plays, and we'll certainly hear more about that on Saturday. Yeah, going back his early life. He was born on November 8th, 1847, on the north side of Dublin, Ireland. The park adjacent to the house is now known as Brom Stoker Park. His parents were Abraham Stoker from Dublin and Charlotte Matilda Blake Thornley, who was raised in County Sligo. Stoker was the third of seven children, the eldest of whom, Sir Thornley Stoker, or was Sir Thornley Stoker. Abraham and Charlotte were members of the Church of Ireland Parish of Clontarf and attended the parish church with their children who were baptized there. Abraham was a senior civil servant. Stoker was invalid and bedridden with an unknown illness and could not stand or walk until he was seven and started school when he made a complete recovery. Of this time, Stoker wrote, I thought naturally and the I natural, excuse me, let me, let me say his quote again. I was naturally thoughtful and the leisure of long illness gave opportunity for many thoughts, which were fruitful according to their kind in later years. He was educated in a private school run by the Reverend William Woods. After his recovery, he grew up without further serious illnesses, even excelling as an athlete, specifically soccer at Trinity College in Dublin, which he attended from 1864 to 1870. He graduated with a B in eight, BA in 1870 and pursued his MA in 1875. Though he later in life recalled graduating, quote, with honors in mathematics, end quote, this appears to have been a mistake. <laughs> he was named university athlete, participating in multiple sports, including playing rugby for Dublin University. He was auditor of the College Historical Society and president of the University Philosophical Society. He remains the only student in Trinity's history to hold both positions, where his first paper was on sensationalism in fiction and society. I like him. Yeah. <laughs> so Go get her. Stoker becomes, uh, became interested in the theater while a student through his friend Dr. Mansoul, Mansell. While working for the Irish Civil Service at Dublin Castle, he became the unpaid drama critic for the Dublin Evening Mail, which was co-owned by Sheridan Lafagno, an author of Gothic Tales. So I wonder if that inspired mm-hmm. him a little bit. Theater critics were held in low esteem, as well they should be. Right. I mean, <laughs> they are critics. I, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. Um, Theater critics were held in low esteem, but he attracted a notice by the quality of his reviews. In December 1876, he gave a favorable review of Henry Irving's Hamlet at the Theatre Royal in Dublin. Irving invited Stoker for dinner at the Shelburne Hotel, where he was staying, and they became friends. Stoker also wrote stories, and Crystal Cup was published by the London Society in 1872, followed by The Chain of Destiny in Four Parts in The Shamrock. In 1876, while still a civil servant in Dublin, Stoker wrote the nonfiction book, The Duties of Clerks of Petty Sessions in Ireland. So exciting. Uh, published in 1879. That sounds like if you should read that if you want to go to sleep. <laughs> which remained a standard work. Furthermore, he possessed an interest in art and was a founder of the Dublin Sketching Club in 1879. I like everything yeah. about this guy. Yeah. In 1878, Stoker married Florence Balcombe daughter of Lieutenant Colonel James Balcombe. She was a celebrated beauty whose former suitor had been Oscar Wilde. Mm. Stoker had known Wilde from his student days, having proposed him for a membership of the university's philosophical society while he was president. Wilde was upset at Florence's decision, but Stoker later resumed the acquaintance and 
acquaintanceship, and after Wilde's fall, visited him on the continent. So they became friends. That's yeah, nice. He's friends with some pretty amazing people. <laughs> the Stokers moved to London, where Stoker began became acting manager and then business manager of Irving's Lysicum uh, Theater in London, a post he held for 27 years. He wrote as many as 50 letters a day on his behalf and accompanied him on his American tours. On December 31st, 1879, Brahm and Florence's only child was born, a son whom they christened Irving Noel Thornley Stoker. The collaboration with Henry Irving was important for Stoker, and through him, he became involved in London's high society, where he met James Abbott McNeil Whistler and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, to whom he was distantly related. Working for Irving, the most famous actor of his time, and managing one of the most successful theaters in London made Stoker a notable, if busy, man. He was dedicated to Irving, and his memoirs show he idolized him. In London, Stoker also met Hall Caine, who became one of his closest friends, and he dedicated Dracula to him. In the course of Irving's tours, Stoker traveled the world, although he never visited Eastern Europe, a setting for his most famous novel. Stoker enjoyed the United States, where Irving was popular. With Irving, he was invited twice to the White House and knew William McKinley and Theodore Roosevelt. Stoker set two of his novels in America and used Americans as characters, the most notable being Quincy Morris. He also met one of his literary idols, Walt Whitman. Stoker was a regular visitor to Cruden Bay in Scotland between 1892 and 1910. His month-long holidays to the Aberdeenshire coastal village provided a large portion of available time for writing his books. Two novels were set in Cruden Bay, The Water's Moe in 1895 and The Mystery of the Sea in 1902. He started writing Dracula there in 1895 while in residence at the Kilimarnock Arms Hotel. The guest book with his signatures from 1894 and 1895 still survives. The hmm. nearby Slane's Castle, also known as known as New Slane's Castle, is linked with Bram Stoker and plausibly provided the visual palette for the descriptions of Castle Dracula during the writing phase. A distinctive room in Slane's Castle, the octagonal hall, matches the description of the octagonal room in Castle Dracula. But how well did he sleep when he was there? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Stoker visited the English coastal town of Whitby in 1890, and that visit was said to be part of the inspiration for Dracula. He began writing novels while working as manager for Irving and secretary and director of London's Lyceum Theatre, beginning with The Snake's Pass in 1890, a romantic thriller with a bleak Western Ireland setting. His masterpiece Dracula appeared in 1897. During this period, Stoker was part of the literary staff of the Daily Telegraph in hmm. London, and he wrote other fiction, including the horror novels The Lady of the Shroud in 1909 and The Lair of the White Worm in 1911. I don't know what that is. He published his personal reminiscences of Henry Irving in 1906 after Irving's death, which proved successful and managed productions of the Prince of Wales Theatre. Before writing Dracula, Stoker met Armin Vambery, a Hungarian Jewish writer and traveler. Born in the kingdom of Hungary, uh, Dracula likely emerged from Van Berry's dark stories of the Carpathian Mountains. However, this claim has been challenged by many, including Elizabeth Miller, a professor who, since 1990, has had as her major field of research in writing Dracula and its author, sources, and influences. She stated, quote, The only comment about the subject matter of the talk was that Van Berry spoke loudly against Russian aggression, end quote. There had been nothing in their conversation about the tales of the terrible Dracula that are supposed to have inspired Stoker to equate his vampire protagonist with the long-dead tyrant. At any rate, by this time, Stoker's novel, novel was well underway, and he was already using the name Dracula for his vampire. 
Stoker then spent several months researching Central and East European folklore and mythological stories of vampires. The 1972 book In Search of Dracula by Radu Florescu and Raymond McNally claimed that the Count in Stoker's novel was based on Vlad III Dracula. However, according to Elizabeth Miller, Stoker borrowed only the name and scraps of miscellaneous information about Romanian history. Further, there are no comments about Vlad III in the author's working notes. The novel is written chiefly in the form of diaries and journals kept by the principal characters. Jonathan Harker, who made the first contact with the vampire Count Dracula, Willima Mina Harker, Murray, Jonathan's eventual wife, Dr. John Jack Seward, a psychiatrist and sanatorium administrator, and Lucy, Mina's friend and a victim of Dracula, who herself becomes a vampire. The story is that of a Transylvanian vampire who, using supernatural powers, makes his way to England and there victimizes innocent people to gain the blood on which he survives. Led by Dr. Abraham Van Hessling, Seward's mentor and an expert on obscure diseases, Harker and his friends, after many hair-raising adventures, are at last able to overpower and destroy Dracula. The immensely popular novel enjoyed equal success in several versions as a play and as a film. Dracula is an epistolary novel where it is a collection of realistic but completely fictional diary entries, telegrams, letters, ship's logs, and newspaper clippings, all of which added a level of detailed realism to the story, a skill which Stoker had developed as a newspaper writer. At the time of its publication, Dracula was considered a straightforward horror novel based on imaginary creations of supernatural life. It gave form to a universal fantasy and became a part of popular culture. The original 541-page typescript of Dracula was believed to have been lost until it was found in a barn in northwestern <laughs> Pennsylvania in the early 1980s. That's crazy. It consisted of type sheets with many uh, notes and handwritten notes on the title page was The Undead. The Ooh. author's name was shown at the bottom of his Bram Stoker. Author Robert Latham remarked the most famous horror novel ever published. Its title changed at the last minute. The typescript was purchased by Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen. He it, loves science fiction stuff. Interesting. Yeah. The Undead. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how that would have worked. Stoker was a member of the London Library, and it is here that he conducted much of the research of Dracula. In 2018, the library discovered some of the books that Stoker used for his research completed, complete with notes in, in margins. So he was writing books. Yeah. Was, that's not good. <laughs> After suffering a number of strokes, Stoker died at number 26 St. George Square, London, on April 20th, 1912. Some biographers attribute the cause of death to overwork, others to tertiary syphilis. His death certificate named the cause of death as locomotor ataxia six months presumed to be a reference to syphilis he was cremated and his ashes were placed in a display urn at golders green crematorium in north london the ashes of irving noel stoker the author's son were added to his father's urn following his death in 1961 the original plan had been to keep his parents ashes together but after florence stoker's death her ashes were scattered at the gardens of rest Two years after Stoker's death, his widow, Florence Stoker, published as part of the posthumous collection of short stories, Dracula's Guest, which most contemporary scholars believe text editors had excised from the original Dracula manuscript. In 2009, Dr. Stoker, the great 
great-grandnephew of the author, whom we're going to see this Saturday. And Ian Holt produced Dracula, The Undead, a sequel that is based on the novelist's own notes and excisions from the original. The sequel, which shuns the style of the first Dracula for traditional third-person narrative, is a thriller set in London in 1912, and it features Bram Stoker as a character. So how exciting. Yeah. So uh, this Saturday, October 1st at the Liberty Theater, no reservations, it's free. We would appreciate a donation, but... Uh, Doc Ray Stoker, great-grandnephew of author Bram Stoker, is going to present 125 Years of Dracula from Novel to Stage to Screen. Free event. Donations accepted. Always. There's there's plenty of seats. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, there's no concern. I mean, you just come 645, right? Or 630 when the doors open. And if you have any questions, go ahead and uh, give us a call at 325-2203 or check out our website at Astoria Museums with an S dot O-R-G. So uh, hope to see you Saturday night at 7 o'clock at Liberty Theater for Dracula. Get your October started right. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Go make some history and we will catch you next week. Thank you for joining us for an adventure in history. An Adventure in History is created and produced by the Clatsop County Historical Society and brought to you by KMUN.